good evening there, kiddos. Time to read again. Let's check out Sir Bentley and the Holbrook Court. Shall we? Okay, so we finished chapter 12. I'll just read the last couple of lines here. I'll read the last page. He was quickly gaining an understanding of the relationship between this mighty warrior and Kingsley. If Averick did not exaggerate his role in garnering Kingsley's wealth and power for him in the land, then Bentley understood why Kingsley allowed what could easily be interpreted as insolence toward him as Lord of Holbrook Court. Averick commanded a force of men from Kingsley that included 25 of his original warriors, 50 lesser knights, and another 200 guards. Bentley was sure that many would do the bidding of Averick in an instant, perhaps even if it went against Kingsley's wishes. After just one night, Bentley was disgusted with the intricate politics of the court. Politics that seemed even to splinter family bonds. He couldn't wait to get away from Holbrook Castle. Okay, chapter 13 is called The Waters of Resolve. By the end of the by by the week's end, Bentley was granted his freedom but Kingsley invited him to remain as an advisor. You shall be well taken care of, he said, and I will compensate you for your counsel in economic affairs. Your offer is gracious, Lord Kingsley, but there are many of your subjects who need my help. Kingsley rolled his eyes and shook his head. Your understanding of business and economics is brilliant. Peasant or not, you do not belong out there. He motioned with his head toward the beautiful walls that surrounded the court. Bentley smiled but shook his head. The prince has taught me that the value of a man and his destiny do not depend upon which side of the castle wall he makes his home. I could force you to stay, Kingsley said sternly. Without a doubt, sir, but which counsel is more valuable, that of a prisoner or that of a friend? Kingsley laughed. You do refresh my soul, Bentley. You will keep your promise to meet with me daily at the gate. I shall, my lord, after I return from a journey, I shall send word. Bentley insisted on donning his peasant clothes before leaving the castle. He re-entered the world of despair on a day when the sun seemed to scorch his skin and there was no breeze to cool it. For some reason, the oppression of the people felt worse now than it had three weeks earlier. At first, he thought it was simply a matter of perspective, but he quickly discovered that this was not so. The people on the streets were truly more weary bedraggled and forlorn than they had ever been before. He made his way to Walsh's home, 
a small cottage on a field near the river. Bordered by trees and blessed with rich soil, it was a good field, one that Walsh was preparing for his future bride and hopefully a family. The cottage was small and simple, with just a single room, but for a strong young peasant it was a good start. Bentley could see Walsh working in the field, and he yelled and waved to him from a distance. Walsh paused his work and looked, but didn't wave back. As Bentley came closer, he pulled his hand to his brow to shade the sun from his eyes. Ben, that be you. Yes, my large friend, it is I. Walsh dropped his hoe and ran to Bentley. He grabbed his arm, smiled, and then embraced him. He stood back and looked Bentley over from head to toe. Prison life suits you well, Walsh said, and then his smile vanished. Bentley saw the same look of despair on Walsh that he had seen on the faces of others. He was concerned. What of Anya? Is she all right? Is she here? Bentley gestured toward the cottage. She's not here, Ben. Walsh shook his head and looked to the ground. What should I know of caring for a wee one? Luann's family agreed to take her in for a time. Bentley sighed with relief. But it's been hard, Ben. Sir Averick and his men have been ruthless. Walsh shook his head slowly. These past two weeks have been getting worse and worse each day. The people be failing, I tell ye. Many have been beaten for the smallest infractions and off for no reason at all. I don't understand it. Bentley's heart sank. I think I do. Has the Mercy Maiden helped at all? She's not been to the prince she's not been to the people since Averick threatened her. I don't think she'll be back. Bentley and Walsh walked as the latter shared story after story of woe. With each one, Bentley's sorrow grew. They came to the river, and the men knelt down to drink. Bentley cupped his hand and lifted the cool, refreshing water to his lips. He felt the cold wash clean down into his bosom. The sensation reminded him of the refreshing truth he had discovered in the prince, and how that too had seemed to wash him deep within. It was at this moment that Bentley resolved to bring such life to these people he had come to love, no matter what it meant for him personally. He stood and walked away a few paces as he thought. He turned back and saw Walsh cooling his neck and face with the cool, cold water. I fear that it is I who have brought this greater oppression to the people, Bentley said. Walsh wiped his face with his hand and looked over at his friend. You're more than you lead on to be, Ben of the South. I've known it from the beginning. You're no commoner. Your hands were not that of a farmer, and the way you took on Averick's night. He stopped mid-sentence. You've been sent to us for a purpose. 
Bentley walked back and looked up at him. By the ways of this kingdom, some may think me to be nobility, but by the ways of the prince, I am just as common as the peasants of Holbrook and as royal as the prince. You make no sense, Ben. Walsh scratched his head. But I've seen something in you that I want, and I know the stories you told are more than fairy tales. Your heart is as large as you are, Bentley said. Join me, and we shall serve the prince together. I am willing, but how? Bentley took Bentley told him of the prince, and there by the Crimson River, in the heat of a blistering day, another was added to the knights of the prince. Bentley felt nearly as invigorated by bringing one to the prince as he had by choosing to follow him himself. That is my purpose, he told his new brother, to bring to others what was given to me, a new life, a new purpose, and I will share that with every willing man, woman, and child of Holbrook. Kingsley will stand in your way, Walsh said. Perhaps, but I don't believe he is our worst adversary. Sir Averick, Walsh said soberly. Yes. What are you going to do? Walsh asked. I must go away, but I will return shortly. Bentley bid Walsh farewell and departed along the road that led northeast from Holbrook. It was the same road he had traveled months earlier, following Sir Demas to the small cabin nestled in the green hills north of the Brimshire Plains. Although he had gone to Holbrook merely to learn about the ways of, of the peasantry, his very presence had changed the course of lives. The oppression the people of Holbrook endured was much more than a heavy yoke for them. It was a true prison. Bentley, Bentley's journey to fully understanding the ways of the prince had led him here, and now he could not simply turn away from their need. Had Sir Demas known this all along? Or was it coincidence that he had entwined his life with the lives of these people? Whether Sir Demas knew it or not, deep in his heart Bentley knew that once one chose the prince, coincidence had very little to do with anything. Chapter 14 The Hog Farmer's Daughter Bentley set his course toward the cottage, hoping that Sir Demas might still be tarrying there. He knew he might not find him, for Demas had indicated he would have other duties in Bentley's absence. He desperately desired the counsel of this wise, mute man, but if that was not to be, there was another purpose for his return. It was time to collect his horse, take up his sword, and put on the full armor of the king. Not too far out of Holbrook, the road rose up from the river plain and into the hills, and Bentley once again came to the fork in the road. 
One branch wove through the Brimwood Forest to the north, where Bentley could see portions of the beautiful Crimson River winding its way through the trees and toward Holbrook. The road he took led along the ridge of a hill for some distance and took him near Demas's cottage. By now, the scorching afternoon sun had fallen far enough to the horizon to cast long, welcoming shadows. Bentley arrived at the crest of the hill where he and Sir Demas had last trained. The cottage was just visible at the lengthy end of a small valley on one side, and the distant, checkered farms of Holbrook were visible on the other. He paused and considered the past few months as he gazed toward Holbrook and the road that had led him there. And the road that had led him here. He breathed deeply and was just about to turn toward the cottage when movement on the road caught his eye. A wagon with a driver, a rider on the back gate, and a single horse was nearing the fork in the road. Though the distance was too far to identify the driver's features, Bentley was certain that it could be none other than Irwin returning from a visit to the people. He waved his arm high above his head, but he was far to the right of her view. He brought his hands to his mouth and took a deep breath to call out to her, then stopped as a slightly mischievous thought entered his mind. The mercy maiden was a mystery to all of Holbrook. If he followed her to her father's hog farm, he might be able to discover more about this odiferous and unusual young woman. He watched as she took the road at the fork that led to the forest. Bentley abandoned his trek to the cottage and wasted no time retracing his steps back to the fork. By this point, however, he was far behind Irwin's wagon, and he had known it would be difficult to catch up with her as it was. The road Irwin took wound its way through the hills until it disappeared into the thick trees of the Brimwood Forest. Bentley followed, trailing far behind. At times, he lost sight of her completely, and once in the forest, she seemed to completely disappear. Bentley quickened his pace and began to tire. Would he ever be able to catch her? The forest smelled sweetly of pine and honeysuckle. The dark green canopy above was pierced occasionally by dancing sunbeams that shifted slightly back and forth as the leaves gated their passing. Bentley smiled to hear the splash of a lofty waterfall a short distance to his left, where the Crimson River should be. The road ahead continued to follow the winding path of least resistance past large rocky outcroppings and hills that would be too steep for a wagon, burdened with a load of wares. At one point, the road sloped sharply, and Bentley had to stop halfway up the hill to catch his breath. Sweat poured from his brow, for even though the forest protected him from the sun, its humid air was hot and heavy to breathe. <clears throat> he rested with hands on his knees and looked ahead to the climb that awaited him. Though the waterfall was now behind him, the sound of it made him desire the cool quenching of thirst it offered. 
Still, he trudged onward, up the rise in the road to the top of a knoll where the trees were thinner. He stopped again at the top and looked ahead, hoping to catch a glimpse of Irwin. Though the section of road ahead was straight for a long distance, she was nowhere in sight. Impossible, he said. He straightened and sucked in several deep breaths, quite at a loss over what to do. Further travel down the road seemed pointless. She had either quickened her pace and was now too far ahead for him to ever catch her, or she truly was some apparition that only materialized outside the boundaries of the forest. It was a silly thought, but it did raise goosebumps on his arms despite the heat of the day. He simply couldn't explain her disappearance. Bentley turned and began to walk back down the road he had just traveled, contemplating the mysterious Irwin. He eventually came to the sound of the falls again and stopped. It dawned on him that the road over the hill must have split further up at the place at a place he couldn't see. It was the only answer. He considered climbing the hill once again to find the other road and realized again that Irwin would now be too far for him to catch her. He settled in his mind that tomorrow he would investigate further once he had recovered Silverwood, if his horse was still at the cottage. Bentley became acutely aware of his thirst at this point, and the waterfall called to him more alluringly than before. He detoured off the road and set his course through the woods in the direction of the sound. The forest floor dropped quickly away, and the terrain became more rugged as he neared the river. With some careful navigating, Bentley finally came to the rocky shores of the Crimson River, just downstream of the falls. Here the river was only fifteen paces wide and perhaps as deep as a man, but the turbulent waters moved swiftly. The babble of the waters slapping the rocks at his feet mixed with the now thunderous sounds of the falls. He knelt beside the mossy rocks on the near bank and drank deeply. Then he stood and looked toward the falls. There were much they were much taller than he expected, and frothy waters at the base were partially hidden by a pervasive white mist that softened the hard edges of the rocky waterway. Bentley was mesmerized by the beauty of the scene. He couldn't resist the urge to draw closer to this living canvas and touch the textured colors of the masterpiece. He made his way up the bank toward the base of the falls. Here, the river widened so that the waters flowed much more slowly. At many places, the river bottom rose up to within inches of the surface, where large, flat rock shelves invited him to wade in the sparkling waters. Bentley looked up again and noticed that there were actually two falls, a larger one that poured itself into the river near where he stood, and a smaller one off to the far side of the river. A craggy vertical rock formation divided the waters before they plummeted to the pools below.
Bentley breathed in deeply of the refreshing mist, invigorated by the sounds, smells, and magnificent beauty of the scene. He lingered for a moment and then turned to leave. But just then, he heard the muffled whinny of a horse. At first, he thought perhaps he had imagined it, for it was quickly lost in the thunderous sound of the falls. He listened again, but heard nothing. Then came the jingle of a harness and the unmistakable scrape of hoofs. He followed along the bank, making his way closer to the falls until he reached a peninsula of rocks that jutted far out into the shallow pool of water not far from the base of the falls. He looked toward the lesser falls, which were partially hidden by the large rock formation that separated the waters. Just over the ledge of the lower portion of the rocks, he spotted a horse, a wagon, and Parson tending a fire on the far bank of the river. Bentley smiled. He removed his cloth shoes, lifted the bottoms of his trousers past his knees, and waded into the bracing waters of the falls base pool. The farther he waded across the pool, the more he could see of the lesser falls. They were gentler falls, for only a fraction of the water spilled over the tree-high crest, and it places the water separated in midair into a shower of sparkling droplets. Bentley waded out farther and deeper. He finally relented and allowed his trousers to become soaked. He came to the edge of the submerged rock shelf he was standing on and peered once more toward the falls and the far shore of the river. He was now twenty paces away from the base of this falls and just on the near side of the rocky formation that separated the two falls. He could see clearly around the rocks to the lesser falls. There, beneath the cleansing wash, of the lesser falls, he saw a young woman. She stood knee-deep in the shallow base pool, wearing a full-length white undertunic, her face turned upward into the gentle spray. It was Irwin, and yet it wasn't Irwin. Bentley could not stop staring, for this Irwin was simply beautiful. Chapter 15 Because of the Gardener Bentley dived into the water and swam to the rocky formation where he found an arched tunnel. The waters from the lesser falls could pass through here, but most of the current was around the far end of the formation. Bentley swam through and into the pool of the lesser falls, keeping close to the edge and as much out of sight as possible. He watched as Irwin took a cloth and rubbed her face, hair, and teeth in the falling waters. He could hardly believe it was the same woman. She ran her hands from her forehead down her long, dark hair once more and then dove into the pool completely unaware of Bentley's presence. He felt quite devious for having spied upon her, but the creature he saw so entranced him 
that he could only draw nearer. He swam to a large rock near the falls and stayed on the side away from Irwin. When she was looking the other direction, he climbed onto the rock and sat down. The sound of the falls hid any noise he made, so it was an easy ploy. He was now only three paces away. Hog farmer, you say, he said. Irwin screamed and turned about quickly in the water. You, you, was all she could say. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to frighten you so terribly. Irwin's face morphed quickly from fear to anger. She began to swim away. Bentley slipped into the water after her. Wait, Irwin, or is that really your name? She continued to swim toward shore, and Bentley followed her. Irwin, please, I want to know more about you. He swam past her and came to another rock shelf that was a few inches beneath the water line. She stopped and treaded water, waiting for him to move. Please talk to me, just for a few minutes, that's all I ask. Bentley stole a glance toward shore and saw that Parson was coming toward them quickly. His large feet pounded through the shallow water and the fierce expression on his face unnerved Bentley. Irwin's scowl slowly disappeared from her face. Why should I trust a man who would sneak up on me so? Bentley lifted himself up and into a sitting position on the rock shelf. Why should I trust a woman whose speech becomes refined with a simple shower? He held out his hand to her as he looked over his shoulder at Parsons' approaching hulk. She hesitated, then took his hand. He lifted her onto the rock ledge beside him, and Irwin made a hand gesture to Parson. He stopped, glared at Bentley, and then turned back toward shore. With a sigh of relief, Bentley looked at Irwin, who seemed to enjoy his uneasiness. She gave him a smile, and Bentley was momentarily dazed by its radiance. Her teeth were now white, and her kind and gentle eyes seemed a close companion to the warmth of her smile. Strange feelings swelled up within him as he looked into her eyes, seeing her for the first time as she truly was. I think you rather enjoyed that, he said as her eyes sparkled with delight. Who are you, Irwin? Certainly not the daughter of a hog farmer. No, I am not. She looked out over the pool of water and took a deep breath, then turned her gaze back to Bentley and studied his eyes intently. I am Lord Kingsley's daughter. Bentley opened his mouth to speak, but could think of nothing to say. Irwin, the Ice Princess. He could hardly make himself believe it. He closed his eyes and filled his mind with the image of the painted white face of Lord Kingsley's daughter in the dining hall. He opened his eyes, and there she was. The features were identical. Now, 
He could see it. But how did you... Why did you... He stumbled. Only Parson knows. Now you. Her countenance fell. And one another. Oh, and one other. She grabbed his arm. You mustn't tell a soul, Bentley. I don't even know why I told you. I guess you just seem like someone I can trust. He nodded solemnly. Your secret is safe with me. Irwin pulled her legs up in front of her and rested her chin on her knees. I'm tired of pretending, but I don't know what else to do. Bentley found himself staring at Irwin, struggling to mesh the two very peculiar characters, the Mercy Maiden and the Ice Princess, into the enchanting young woman who now sat just an arm's reach away. Why do you do it? he asked. Irwin gazed into the rippling water and its mesmerizing rhythm as if it were a window into her past. I do it because of the gardener. Bentley was confused. The gardener? My father has always had many servants and groundskeepers to manage the gardens. He told us that we were only to interact with them to the extent that was required for them to do their duties, for we were a higher class of people. Irwin slowly shook her head back and forth. Although I obeyed my father, I never understood why it was supposed to be like that. There were children around the manor I could never play with because they were the children of common people, and that just didn't seem right. One day I was walking through a garden, and one of the groundskeepers began to talk to me. I was very surprised because if he had been caught, he would have been punished. He was so kind and gentle. I visited him every day in the garden, and we became friends. He secretly taught me how to grow beautiful flowers and care for them season after season. Irwin paused. Her dreamy, peaceful countenance was a delight for Bentley to behold as she recalled favorite memories for him. He taught me much more than gardening. Because of him, I learned that my father was wrong. The more my father mistreated the peasants, the more I realized I had to do something to help them. Irwin broke her trance from the water and looked into Bentley's eyes. The gardener taught me that, whether peasant or nobleman, every person is precious. I came to despise the monthly parades my father orchestrated. They embarrassed me. I love my father, but he can be a hard man. Opposing him openly was not an option for me, so I looked for other ways to help the people. Irwin chuckled. What is it? Bentley asked. The gardener even played swords with me. At least I thought it was play, but after several years I found that I had learned much about using the sword. Really? 
Bentley said with a little more surprise in his tone than he had intended. Irwin didn't seem offended, but just nodded and smiled. Do you still meet with the gardener? Bentley asked. Irwin dropped her gaze and her countenance fell slightly. I have not seen him for years. When my father made an agreement with Sir Averick and invited him into the court, the gardener disappeared. I think he could not bear how harsh Averick was with the people. I asked all of the other servants, but no one seemed to know anything. The remnant afternoon heat was diminishing, and Irwin began to shiver as they sat in the shallow water. You're cold, Bentley said. Shall we go to the fire? Irwin nodded. He helped her up, and they walked to the shore where Parson was adding a log to the fire. At first, the huge man looked sternly at Bentley, but Irwin made two quick motions with their hands and gently touched his arm. He nodded and then walked to the wagon. Bentley and Irwin warmed themselves, and their clothes slowly began to dry. Parson returned and offered them each a warm cup of broth and some bread. Irwin sat on a large log and closed her eyes as she swallowed the broth and soaked up the warmth of the fire. Is it true that your father hired Sir Averick and his men to protect the court from the mountain raiders? Bentley asked, remembering what Walsh had told him. He sat beside her, acutely aware of Parson's wary glance. Yes, the Lucrums began to raid us often. Sir Avery came with twenty-five warriors and offered to train our knights to defend the castle and father's lands. At first it seemed like an answer to all of our problems, but Sir Avery oppressed the people in ways my father never did. He began to advise Father on how to gain wealth by forcing the people to work harder and taxing them even more. That pleased Father, and so Averick has become a powerful man in the court. Averick fueled my father's greed until it became an obsession. Irwin looked at Bentley, and a fire of determination kindled in her dark brown eyes. I had to do something. Even if it was small, I made it a habit to take horseback rides every day. My father would allow it if one of the knights accompanied me. After relentless persuasion, I convinced my father to agree to let Parson escort me instead. Irwin smiled and looked toward the huge servant who had taken to grooming the horse. Bentley laughed. I can see why you chose him. He's as gentle as the gardener, as long as I'm not threatened. Irwin smiled at Bentley. We became friends, and I learned to talk to him using hand gestures. One day on our ride, he took me to a farm where a little boy had died because he fell ill and was too weak to recover. Irwin's eyes filled with tears. I was so saddened by that family's sorrow that I knew I had to do something to help. It felt like their grief was my fault.
when Father and Sir Averick were away on business to Thessia. I came up with a crazy idea to masquerade as a hog farmer's daughter and bring supplies to the people who needed help. Irwin laughed as a cover of her sadness, as a cover for her sadness, and lifted her hand to wipe away the unspilled tears from her eyes. Bentley reached out and touched her arm. You're a brave girl, Irwin, and you've made such a difference. It's not enough. She shook her head. Not nearly enough. A long moment of silence passed. Bentley marveled at his surprising discovery. He was grateful for the influence of the gardener, whoever he was, in Irwin's life. That man had cultivated not only the flowers of the court, but the beautiful and merciful heart of a maiden who had the courage to make a difference. What of your brother, Braith? Bentley asked. Have you tried to reach him? Irwin shook her head. He fell under Averick's influence almost from the beginning, and Averick trained him in the ways of a warrior. He has become as greedy as my father and nearly as heartless as Averick. Braith thinks Averick is a hero and would follow him anywhere. I've tried to speak to him, but it is useless. When my father brought Averick into the court, he lost a son, and I lost a brother. I've never spoken to anyone about this, Irwin said with a look of regret. I don't know why I told you. I don't even know who you are. She looked at Bentley as though she were seeing him for the first time. Her eyes narrowed and filled with questions. I'm just a commoner, my lady. He gave a quick smile, then looked away. Then I should wish that all men were as common as you, Irwin said. Thank you for your help. Bentley looked back at her and realized in that moment that she had captured his heart. Completely and inescapably. Though he had not come to Holbrook for any such thing and had purposefully avoided the world of romance, he simply could not resist the splendor of her spirit. He was amazed at the new and powerful feelings of love that stirred within him. Parson brought Irwin a gown, and Bentley assumed it was the clothing she'd worn when she'd left the castle earlier that day. Parson's right, Irwin nodded to her large accomplice. The day is well spent and people will begin to wander. She excused herself and disappeared behind some thick brush to change. She returned wearing the modest but beautiful gown of a lady and sat next to Bentley once again while Parson made final preparations to be on their way. Why didn't you talk to me when I was a prisoner in the castle? Bentley asked. Remember the day you were captured? I confronted Sir Averick to keep him from killing you, and he then realized who I was. 
He threatened to tell my father what I was doing and to kill you if I ever talked to you or tried to help the people again. He believes peasants are to be used solely for monetary and political gain and nothing more. That is why he was so angry. For the daughter of Lord Kingsley to be talking to a peasant. Lord Kingsley's daughter. A deep, raspy voice exclaimed from the trees just a couple paces behind them. What treasure we've found. Irwin cried out briefly and Bentley jumped to his feet. He turned to see that just as he had been able to approach Irwin unnoticed, so had six mounted raiders, and one of them was undeniably the man who had started all the trouble at Holbrook Court. The man they called the Ashen Knight. Okay, kiddos, that's the end of chapter 15. We're going to stop there for tonight. All right, this is the time when I tell you, kiddos, I love you very, very much. Lily Joy, Garrison Walter, Sonia Camille, Christina Rochelle, Gideon Paul. I love all you kiddos very, very much. And I feel so privileged to be a dad and to have kids to read stories like this to. And uh, I'm just very happy to be your daddy. And, okay, I just got to mention, I just got to say it. There's a lot of really crappy, garbage, worldly, superficial romance out there. I mean, me and your mom keep it out of the house as best we can. All of the appearance-based, I love you because you're so beautiful, I'm in love with you, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff that makes me want to lose my cookies every time I see it in a movie or wherever. But I just got to say, when Chuck Black writes books about that have romantic parts and Sir Bentley saying that he's fallen in love with... um the Painted Princess, otherwise known as Irwin, or maybe that's her name, maybe it's not, but that he's fallen in love with her because of all of the wonderful things she's done and because of her heart and because of the splendor of her spirit. Okay, kiddos, that's for real there, I just got to tell you. That, that is real romance. That is good stuff. That's how we want to choose our spouses. Because of the splendor of their spirit, their internal beauty, and the things, the good things that they do for other people. And yes, uh, um, evidently she was very beautiful in appearance too. Especially without her, like, blackened teeth and 
uh, pig manure smell, which I guess was her disguise. So, you guys have full license to boys, Garrison, Gideon. You have daddy's full permission and blessing to find any woman, any young lady out there. First of all, it's got to be like mommy. You know your mom very well and all of her qualities. But you're allowed to find a young lady like Irwin because of all of the good things she has done for those less fortunate, her compassionate heart, and the splendor of her spirit, and also her physical beauty. That is just a reflection of all the good stuff on her insides. Okay, you boys hearing me? Find yourself a girl like Irwin. Got it? You don't have to sneak up on her when she's taking a bath in a waterfall. That's a tiny bit creepy. But, hey, you know, I guess Bentley had to find out who she was, so that's just how it went down on this occasion. I'm going to be upfront with her. Don't stalk her. Even though that makes for funny Tim Hawkins songs, don't be a stalker. Yes, boys, but do find yourself a young lady like Irwin. And girls, Lily, Chrissy, Sonia, if you have any friends now or into the future, you want to be on the lookout for ladies like Irwin. First of all, you want to be a lady like Irwin. Second of all, if you meet one and happen to become friends with her, this is when you say, you know what, uh, I, I have a brother. You might like him. That's how, that's how all this stuff happens, you guys. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, this, that's, that's how it's supposed to happen. Okay, enough romance lessons from Daddy. I'm no expert. You'll get lots of other help there, too. All right, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Chuck Black and the cool books he writes and all the stories and lessons in them, especially about internal beauty and all the things that comes with that. Uh, Lord, I just bless my children to take all of these qualities that they're learning from their mom. Okay, and I'll hopefully say a few from me, but also our good friends and people we spend a lot of time with. And yes, even characters in these books that are, that are in a story, but still a really good lesson. Father, I just bless them to find friends and spouses with good character, and beautiful hearts and beautiful souls and spirits full of splendor. And yes, also very beautiful and attractive on the outside too. But first of all, beautiful on the inside. I just bless them and commission them to go forth and find these people who are beautiful on the inside. 
to befriend and also to marry. If Father, if you call them and place it in their hearts to be uh, married, either sooner or later. So I just thank you, Lord God, for good examples and for all the good examples we have with uh, um, the kids that the kids go to school with. Some of the teachers, maybe not quite all, definitely our lunch bunch friends and especially their mom. Thank you so much, Lord, for all the good examples that we have. Um, we love you, Lord. And most of all, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did for us and who you are to us even right now. Our friend, our counselor, our brother, our Lord, our Savior, our advocate, our great high priest. We love you, Jesus, and we just pray that we would walk with you all the days of our lives. Help the kids get good sleep and have a great day tomorrow. In your mighty name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Okay, kiddos. Love you very much. I'll catch you later. Night-night. Love will make your days come 